All right, so I want to show you uh, two images. I want you to think in terms of who would you want with you if there's a crisis? There's a crisis, there's a bad guy. Who's this up here? What's his name? Chuck Norris, specifically in this role, he's Walker, Texas Ranger, right? So would you want him or would you want this guy with you if a, if a crisis happened? All right, tell me who this is. Some of you may be George Costanza, all right? George Costanza, so, so uh, and then we got a side-by-side -side of them, okay? So let's just keep these two guys in mind. Um, so bad thing happens, you know, Walker always seems to know what to do, doesn't he? He's, he's famously courageous, He's never encountered a situation that can't be fixed by a roundhouse kick to the face, okay? He knows what to do. George Costanza, on the other hand, is notoriously cowardly, petty, self-centered. He once ran out of a burning building and he knocked over women and children and the elderly on his way out. So question, of these two, which would most surprise and amaze you if you heard they did something brave? We, we, we expect Walker to do brave stuff, right? I mean, we just expect Walker, Texas Ranger, to be brave. But if Costanza was heroic, we would be truly shocked. We would say, what is going on? What's happening with him? Let me ask you another question. Which of these two would you rather be like? Um, I know, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I think whether we're masculine or feminine, I think today, given the choice between Walker and Costanza, I would wager that most of us would prefer be like Walker, Texas Ranger. Uh, you know, spiritually, wouldn't you love to be like the spiritual equivalent of Chuck Norris, just walking around, round, roundhouse kicking the devil in the face all day long, doing the right thing, courageous all the time? But do you find that you're more of a spiritual George Costanza when you're honest? I know... Um, I used to fly a lot for, for work, doing missions all around the world, and, and, um, and uh, we, uh, you know, I would, my coworkers, my teammates, a lot of time would take sleep aids on these long, long trips, these flights to Africa and Eastern Europe, but I never would take a sleep aid because I saw Delta Force when I was a kid, okay? And some, if, if a terrorist tries to take down that plane, somebody's got to be the one that roundhouse kicks that terrorist in the face, right? And I've never done that before. But I was confident that God would supernaturally give me the ability to roundhouse kick somebody in the face. And so, uh, but, but, but then, you know, I got put in a situation a while back, a few years ago. A friend of mine and I were cleaning out a barn. It was a little room off, the, off to the corner of the barn. And there was one way in, one way out. And I hate snakes. I don't like snakes. I'm scared of snakes. And, uh, you know, my friend was standing in the doorway there, and we're talking. And I picked up a pile of junk, and there was a rattlesnake there. That thing was at least this big, okay, and there was a rattlesnake in there, and I don't know what happened, I don't know how it happened, all I know is when I, when I looked up again, I was outside uh, the barn, and my friend was on the ground, okay, I, I pulled a major George Costanza in that moment, and so I think we, 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 we want to be the spiritual equivalent of Chuck Norris, but I think deep down we're afraid we're more like George Costanza. What if your greatest weaknesses and what if your greatest liabilities are actually the very things that make you usable by God? Here's why this is so important. There are people in this room, some of us here today, that are on the sidelines when it comes to serving God because you think you're too weak, too young, too old, too anxious, too sinful for God. But God loves to take what is weak and what is foolish and show himself strong them. 
When George Costanza gives Satan a roundhouse kick to the face, everybody knows that God is at work. Today we're talking about a man named Gideon. So we're going to be in Judges. That's in your Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, then Judges. When we meet Gideon, he's a lot more like George Costanza than Walker, Texas Ranger. He's afraid, he's full of excuses, constantly wanting God to prove himself one more time, and yet God works powerfully through Gideon. Today you can have confidence that God sees where he's taking you and what he's making you. God sees where he's taking you. God knows what he's making you. And because of that, every believer can be made courageous by the power of God's presence. So this Old Testament book of Judges provides a snapshot of this dark period in Israel's history. This is the period after Joshua's death. We talked about Joshua a couple of weeks ago. Joshua, the leader of the people, have died, has died. Now there's no, uh, the, the kingship hasn't begun yet. And so there's a season where God would raise up these kind of regional leaders called judges who would, who would lead the people. Um, and it's a period of spiritual and moral confusion. The theme verse of Judges is really summarized as everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So think about this, a period of spiritual and moral confusion when everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. Does that describe any other points in human history, do you think? We're living here. It sounds familiar. One of my favorite uh, movies is, is Groundhog Day. Those of you that know me know this. Bill Murray plays Phil Connors. He's a, a, a bitter weatherman, and he ends up getting stuck in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, reliving Groundhog Day over and over and over again. And every time he, he, he dies or the day ends, and he wakes up, and it's Groundhog Day all over again. He's just stuck in this cycle over and over and over again. And the, the way he finally breaks out of that cycle um, is he takes an honest look at his life. He's transformed. Um, there's a vicious cycle presented in the book of Judges. It's kind of like they're living in Groundhog Day. And you got the same things happening over and over and over again throughout this book. So what happens is God rescues them. He rescues them from Egypt. He rescues them time and time again. And the people start kind of getting comfortable. Instead of thinking God's great, they start thinking I'm pretty great. And they start saying, you know, I can just kind of do things my own way. What does it matter if I worship a few, um, you know, little G gods? What if I do my own thing? It's not that big of a deal. But what we find is small areas of dis. Uh, of disobedience to God end up leading to disaster. Disobedience leads to disaster. That's what the people find. So they rebel against God. As a result of that, God punishes them. God pours out his wrath on them. God uh, delivers retribution to them. In the, in the book of Judges, it's through the form of other people in this area that would come and oppress his people. And as, this, as their rebellion has met with, with God's wrath, eventually things get so heavy that the people repent. They cry out to God and say, God, where are you? I need you. Um, whatever what, whatever it, it, it takes, I need, you to, I need you to rescue me. And God rescues them again. The people have rest. And then wash, rinse, repeat. A few years pass, the people rebel, experience God's wrath, repent, and are rescued. They're living in Groundhog Day. But you know what? That vicious cycle probably sounds very familiar to most, if not all of us. We, keep, we have these recurring cycles in our lives where we do what is right in our own eyes. We suffer the consequences of that. We cry out to God for help. He delivers us. And then not too long, much longer, we find ourselves back where we started again. J.D. Greer, talking about the book of Judges, says we, we have to choose 
between the God who saves and gods who will only enslave. The people of Israel had this encounter and they know this God, this big G God who has rescued them and saved them from Egypt. And he has the power to truly save them, but they continually choose to pursue little G gods who only have the power to enslave them. And today, uh, we may not be having people chasing Baal or Ashtoreth, but today we still have the same fundamental choice. Will we serve, will we place our trust in gods who enslave or the God who can save. Today, maybe, maybe we're looking at, if I just had enough money in the bank account, I'd be fine. If I just had this status, maybe you're looking at relationships to save you. Whatever idol we have that we're trying to get to save us, it's only going to enslave us. Maybe you know what it's like to be stuck in a cycle that's happening over and over again. Can we ever break out of Groundhog Day? I believe we can break out of Groundhog Day because God sees what he's making you. He knows where he's taking you. And because of that, you can have courage by the power of God's presence. So when God does work in a person, first thing I want us to see as we dive into the life of Gideon, God begins in your heart. God begins in the heart. So let's go to Judges 6. The last verse, the last part of the last verse of, uh, of Judges 5 says, the, the land had rest for 40 years. God has delivered them. God used work through Deborah, this amazing judge, and he, he delivered the people, and they had rest for 40 years. And in chapter 6, verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil on the side of the Lord. You see the cycle? There was rest, rescue, and then they rebel. They do what's evil in the side of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. There's wrath, retribution. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them, devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. They would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so they laid waste the land as they came by. So the, so, so the people rebel against God, and God uses this wicked people, these wicked people, the Midianites, as his hand of judgment against his people. Um, and, and, uh, and these Midianites would come in on their, on their camels, they would come riding in, and they would just take all of uh, the livestock of Israel. They would take all of the crops of Israel. They would take everything. It says they're like locusts coming and just devouring the land. And Israel, who, who, who was given this land by God, they're reduced to living in caves up in the hills, caves in the mountains to escape the Midianites. Look at, at what happens. Verse 6, Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When do you cry out for help? Is it when your marriage is great and your finances are booming and you're healthy as a horse? I mean, I wish we cried out to God in those times. That would be a mark of maturity if we cry out to God in those times. But, but think about your life. Because we, we we're tempted to say, well, man, that's kind of harsh, God. You send in the Midianites for seven years to punish Israel? Yeah. But what happens as a result of them being brought low is they cry out to God. When you are brought low, you cry out to God. And God is far more interested in your heart than he is in your comfort. They're brought low. They cry out for help from the Lord. So what does God do? Verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. 
Does that seem like an odd solution to you? I mean, the people have this military enemy that's coming and taking their stuff, and God's answer is to send a preacher. It's kind of like maybe you're in jail and you want somebody to come bail you out, but somebody comes to do a Bible study instead. And you're kind of like, I appreciate the Bible study, but really what I just need is somebody just to bail me out. And so the, the people of Israel are saying, thanks for the prophet, but really what needs to happen is you need to, what about the Midianites? Can you do something about the Midianites? I mean, the sermon is great, but can't, what, about the, what about the Midianites? Aren't they the problem? And the thing is, the Midianites are not the problem. They're not the biggest problem the people of Israel are facing. God begins with their heart. You know, whatever your issue today, whatever your Midianite is, maybe you're saying your husband's a Midianite or your wife's a Midianite or your bank account's a Midianite or yell, whatever your issue is, that's just, that's the thing that just has to be fixed. That's not your problem. That's not your deepest problem. Your deepest problem is a heart problem. Our circumstances reveal what's going on in our heart, and we want God to fix our circumstances, and, and, and he can, and he does, and he will, but what he's, more, what he's more focused on, what he cares most about is your heart, so he sends a prophet. And what does the prophet say? Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from me. He reminds them of what they've forgotten. See, the Israelites have this problem that we all have. We have this condition called spiritual amnesia. And we forget what God has done. They've forgotten, and so God sends someone to remind them. I led you from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you. I gave you their land, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You will not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So I told you, you didn't have to fear these false gods. You didn't have to bow down and worship these false gods. I know everybody around you is chasing uh, money, sex, and power, but you didn't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to, bow. You don't have to drink from that well, but you did anyway. Even after everything I did, even after everything I saw, you saw, you have not obeyed my voice. They have a heart problem that's deeper than any Midianite problem. So how can you slow down, unclench your fists, and be open to whatever heart issue God wants to do in you. You can get still. You can get solitude. You can get silent. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, it's easy for, if you had my schedule, Matt. That might be easy for a preacher that has his feet up all day, but like I got a, I got a job. I got kids at home. Okay, Jesus was able to get still, get solitude, get silent. Minutes, hours, a day, days, whatever it takes, but get still, get silent, get solitude. And you'll amaze as you get still, silent, and alone in front of God's word and open up your hands what God can do. God begins with your heart. Second, God calls the weak. God calls the weak. God calls the George Costanzas of this world to do amazing things. When we meet Gideon, He's a man characterized by fear. But God calls him a mighty man of valor. Verse 11, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So let's set the scene here. If you're an Israelite and it's time for you to thresh wheat, what you would do is you would go out to an open air place, throw the wheat up in the air, and the wind would sweep away the chaff and the, the good stuff would fall on the ground in front of you. So the place not to thresh wheat would be in a pit like a wine press. That's not where you, you thresh your wheat. But we're told the reason that Gideon's there is because he is afraid of the Midianites. Now, he's rightfully afraid, but the picture we have so far of Gideon isn't Walker, Texas Ranger, come Midianites, come and get me. Now, that's not what's going on here. He's afraid. The first thing we find about Gideon is that he is afraid. But that this messenger or this angel of the Lord, later it says it's the Lord himself, comes to Gideon and says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Can you imagine Gideon kind of looking around the wine press like, who's he talking to? God has this thing where he calls you something before it's true of you. When you place your trust in Jesus, God calls you a son or a daughter before you act anything like a son or a daughter. Through faith in Christ, by grace through faith, God calls you a holy nation. He calls us a royal priesthood when we are not priestly at all yet. But God sees where he's taking you. He knows what he's making you. He calls Gideon a mighty man of valor because that's what he is going to become. God's word says that God calls those things that are not as though they are. God calls things into existence. That's why we got to pay attention to what God says about us. God calls us by what's true before it is true of us. Jesus knows where he's taking you. Matthew 5, 48 says, be perfect or be mature, be whole, even as my heavenly father is perfect. And Jesus is not gonna stop until he gets you there. So, so, so this issue of identity is so important. The angel of the Lord doesn't come and say to Gideon, uh, hey, you're Gideon and you're, you're, you're this tall, you weigh this much, your social security number is this, you were born on this day. The only fact about Gideon that matters is he says the Lord is with you. That's what Gideon's identity is. The Lord is with you. What's God's identity? We're told in the New Testament that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And if you want to get clarity, get clear on your identity is one, you are a person that God is with. That's your identity. Who's God, what's God's identity? God's identity is one who is with you. Wow. Gideon responds the way we often respond. Gideon said, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Apparently, Gideon hasn't been paying a lot of attention, okay? But he says, if, this is if, if the Lord's with us, why has this happened? Have you asked any if, why questions of God lately? I bet in the past, if, I mean, if God's good, why? Haven't I won the lottery yet? Yeah, we ask this kind of stuff all the time. We ask, we ask legitimate stuff. Man, if God's good, why is my marriage falling apart? If God's good, why is my kid sick? If God's good, why did my, my, my mom pass away? Whatever it is, we ask this question. This is an honest question Gideon asks. The, the Psalms at this question. If, why? But what he's apparently blind to is the wickedness of sin and the holiness of God. Because if, if Gideon was tuned in to how wicked sin is, and how holy God is, he would look around and say, yeah, I see why we're being punished. I can see why God's judgment is being poured out. 
we wonder when God, and I'm sure Gideon's been wondering, you know, when's God going to step in and intervene in this Midianite problem? I mean, we've got this Midianite thing going on. When's God going to intervene in that? When God does intervene in this world, it usually involves us. So we're thinking about, we like to sit around and think, man, this, this country's going to, you know, going down the tubes, you know. God really ought to do something about that. Somebody should do something about that. Man, we really need to tell lost people about Jesus. I think I'll call the preacher and tell him he needs to. What are we going to do about poverty? What are we going to do about injustice? What are we going to do about revival? What are we going to do about evangelism? What are we going to do about racial reconciliation? God says, I got a plan for that. You're the plan. And we're like, well, okay, but uh, I think Will isn't very busy right now. I got a plan. My plan is to send you. And that's where Gideon starts backpedaling. But God calls the weak. You know, if God had called Walker, Texas Ranger to lead uh, Israel's military, that wouldn't be that impressive. But if God calls George Costanza to do it, man, something's going on. God is really amazing. So what happens next? Verse uh, 13, Gideon said, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where, where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us, given us to the hand of Midian. What have you done for us lately, basically, he's asking. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? So the Lord just turns to him and says, go in this might of yours. Go in this strength of yours and save Israel. Don't I send you? Now, 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 when the Lord says, go, didn't I send you, does that sound like anybody else? Doesn't that kind of sound like the words of Jesus when he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations? Doesn't that kind of sound like the, the, the Great Commission? That sounds like exactly what Jesus says to you and me the moment we give our lives to Jesus, the moment we get saved. He says, go. He says, don't I send you? Go in this might of yours. I send you. What might is he talking about? This is a guy that's hiding in a pit so he doesn't get seen by the Midianites. The might of Gideon and the might of yours isn't your bloodline. It's not your family heritage. It's not how much money you have in the bank. Your, your strength, your might is that God is with you and that God has sent you. That's what makes all the difference. Go in this might of yours. And here's where Gideon starts backpedaling because we all want the world to change. We all just want somebody else to do it. We all want the world to be one for Jesus and poverty to go away. We all want that. We just want somebody else to do it. And so Gideon really wants something to be done about the Midianites, but God says, I'm sending you. And he says, well, you know, about that. Uh, here's where George Costanza kicks in. He says, about that. Verse 15, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. I mean, I'm really in a season of busyness right now. I'm uncluttering my life right now. And really, I'm cluttering my life, but I'm just cutting out anything to do with Jesus out of it right now. So yeah, if you could just kind of get somebody else, that would be great. And the Lord looks at him. The Lord looks at him, and he says, uh, does he say, oh, Gideon, your clan's not the weakest. You're not the weak. Gideon, come on, Gideon. Remember all the good things you've done. Gideon, you're such a great guy. God doesn't take this opportunity to build up Gideon's self-esteem. 
God is not concerned about Gideon's self-esteem. God is concerned that Gideon knows that God is with Gideon. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, Gideon, but you're great. You're good enough. You're smart enough. Doggone it. People like you. He doesn't say any of that. What's he say? He says, but I will be with you. I'll be with you. You're walking around town with Chuck Norris with you. What are you worried about? I'm with you. You're going to see them fall like they're one man. And when we are saying, God, I can't, or what about me, or this, he says, I'm with you. What are you worried about? I'm with you. That's what matters. The thing about Gideon, he's crystal clear on his inability to do this job, which is why he is so cut out for this job. Because we're tempted to trust in our self-sufficiency rather than in Christ's all-sufficiency. But when I'm clear that I am unable to change my marriage, I am unable to, I'm unable, excuse me, to save my marriage, I'm unable to save people, I'm unable uh, to, to be used mildly of God in my own strength, That's, that, that understanding of my inability opens me up to receive God's ability. He says, I'm with you. I'm with you when you step out in faith. I'm with you when you shrink back in fear. I'm with you when you're waiting on those medical results. I'm with you when you're sitting in the courtroom. I'm with you when your child is being rebellious. I'm with you when your parent is being overbearing. I am with you when you, uh, regardless of what you're facing. And then what we see is that God's transforming work spreads from Gideon's heart to his home. I'm gonna kind of summarize the next piece here. God says to Gideon in the next few verses, he says, here's what I want you to do. He says, uh, go and, and your dad, he says, you know how your father has this idol to Baal and he has this idol to Asherah? He's got an Asherah pole, which was a worship of a goddess and he had this shrine to Baal. He says, I want you to take your father's bull and I want you one of his bulls and, and destroy all that, pull down the Asherah pole, cut it up in pieces, destroy the altar, make a big fire out of the wood of the Asherah pole and then take your father's other bull and sacrifice that bull as an altar, as an altar to the Lord. And Gideon's like, mm, I don't know about, or am, I, am, I, am I hearing you clearly here? And it's interesting that God doesn't send Gideon to go knock down the idols in somebody else's backyard. The first place he sends Gideon is to his very own father's house. Tear down your idols, and then you can go tear down other people's idols. And so what happens is we read, Verse 27, so Gideon took 10 men of his servants, did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So to his credit, he does it, but he's afraid of his family. You ever, you ever shrink back from serving God because you're afraid of your family or you're afraid of other people? Yeah, Gideon's relatable to us. In so many ways, we are him, which is encouraging and kind of discouraging at the same time. Leadership begins at home. Repentance begins at home. Judgment begins at home. And then in verse 34, we see that God clothes Gideon with God's very own spirit. It's unclear whether this is, God's, whether this is Gideon with a, 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 a God's spirit costume on, clothing on, or if this is the spirit of God with a Gideon clothing on. But whatever this phrase means, God clothes and empowers Gideon with his very own spirit. Last thing, so God calls, the, he starts in our heart, he calls the weak, and, and last, he's patient with our doubts. He's patient with our doubts. 
Over and over, Gideon tests God. Earlier in the chapter, he said, when the, when the messenger of the Lord first comes to him, he says, wait here, I'm going to go make you a meal. I'm going to test this out. He goes, makes a meal, sets it down, and says, if you really are the Lord, do something cool. And the Lord burns the, the meal, and he makes a, makes a burning altar out of it, or a burning flame out of it. And Gideon's like, that's pretty cool. You, you must be God. And then, and then later, in verse 36, Gideon says to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, so God's already told him something, right? If you're really going to do what you said, behold, I'm laying down a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and is dry on the ground, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand, just as you have said. And it was so. He rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece. He wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. So he says, okay, God, I just need one more test just to make sure you really meant what you said to me. I'm going to put a fleece out on the ground and, and tomorrow morning, if the ground's dry, but the fleece is wet, I'll know you really meant what you said. So the next morning, he goes and rings it out, fills up a bowl of water. He says, and, and then the next part is just so awkward. I mean, this is embarrassing. He says, verse 39, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece, about the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and let all the ground be wet with dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece, and all the ground there was dew. Gideon tests God repeatedly. In God's patience, God answers Gideon's request. Let me ask you this. Does Gideon ask for these signs because he has tons of faith or because he has very little faith? Often, I think he has very little faith. Often I hear this story laid out as, well, I just got to put out a fleece and see what God wants to do. Gideon's way here isn't, being commended to us as the way, we're being shown the absurdity. He's had an encounter with God, and yet he keeps wanting that, he wants one more sign. But if we're honest, this is us. Remind me, God, if you really mean that, if you really want me to tell this person about Jesus, I'd like for three unicorns to jump out in the road ahead of me on my way to work, then I'll know. If you really want me to be a generous giver, I'll know when I win the lottery. That's my sign. If you really want me to forgive this person, um, when they walk in the door, if they'll do three backflips, I'll know. Signs are awesome when they happen. I mean, I love getting signs and confirmations. That God, I mean, there's, in fact, there's hundreds of things that happen every day that remind us God's with us. I love it when these specific things happen. But what happens is if we try to camp out and rest our faith on signs, it's never enough. Remember when Jesus is hanging from the cross and the same people that had seen him heal the sick and, and, and feed the hungry said, take yourself off from that cross and then we'll believe. They're saying, just one more thing. And Jesus says an adulterous and first generation seeks a sign, but one sign will be given if that's the sign of Jonah. I'm going to go in the tomb for three days and I'm going to come out risen. You want a sign? You want a sign that God loves you? You want a sign that God is holy? You want a sign that God does what he says he'll do? You want a sign that God means what he says? It's the sign is the cross planted in the middle of human history where the Savior was, was, was crucified. The sign is an empty tomb where he walked out of three days. Here's your sign. The cross, the resurrection of Jesus. That's the sign that God loves you. That's the sign that will transform you. The rest of the story, God delivers the people through this cowardly and doubting Gideon against impossible odds. Gideon shows up with his posse and God's like, you got too many people. He trims it down, trims it down, trims it down. And then against incredible odds, impossible odds, they win this victory. And after everything he's seen, Gideon, by the end of his life, ends up chasing idols. 
himself. He says, hey guys, you know when we, when we took down all those, when we defeated those pagans, let's take all their jewelry and melt it together and let's make me a nice breastplate, a nice vest out of it. And he makes an ephod, which is a priestly garment. It was gold and beautiful. And he started worshiping that thing. And after he died, the people of Israel started worshiping that like they'd worship the golden calf in the wilderness. See, even after everything he saw, Gideon went back to gods that only could enslave, did not have the power to save. The people, again, did what was right in their own eyes, and the cycle continued. So thankful for us, Jesus is better than Gideon. Jesus trusts his father, and he resists the temptation to test his father. Jesus confronts the idolatry of his day in broad daylight, not in the dead of night. And he hangs from a pole in broad daylight. Jesus gives us the ultimate sign of God's love, the cross and the tomb. Finally, Gideon was faithful for a little while. Jesus is faithful to the very end. So what makes a leader? Whether you're Walker or you're Costanza, you know what makes a leader? God's call, God's presence. God sees where he's taking you. He knows what he's making you, and because of that, you can have courage today. So where does God's work begin? It begins in your heart. What's the first step? We trust Jesus. We had two kids make professions of faith in Sunday school this morning, several professions of faith last week. Maybe it's time for you to renounce whatever Baal or Ashtarah you've been chasing. Whatever has enslaved you. Maybe it's time that you repent and renounce that and you place your trust in Jesus. Your next step, stop testing. Start trusting. Stop saying, God, if you really meant me, no. How, how do you stop testing and start trusting? His delivering presence. His delivering presence that he is with you, that's what delivers you from that vicious cycle of doing what is right in your own eyes. So we're gonna do two things next. Before communion, we're gonna have the band come up and we're gonna have a time of invitation. So, so think with me on this question. Have I renounced the idols that have enslaved me? Have I placed my trust in Jesus who can save me.